chapter number 15. We'll begin reading with verse number 22. Scripture says, And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the transgressors. I want to preach tonight by the help of the Lord, the world's greatest thief. The world's greatest thief. Would you lift your hand toward heaven this evening? Ask for the help of the Spirit over the remainder of this service. Father, we come to the most crucial time of our service, and that is when the Word is imparted to our soul. I pray that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say in the church, but also, God, that our faith would be activated and joined with this word. And over the next few moments, that we would prepare our hearts and our minds to draw closer to you. We thank you for it. Can we clap our hands unto the Lord and take a moment to give God praise? Hallelujah. Lord bless you as you're seated this evening. The landscape of history has surely seen its fair share of thieves, many of which have etched upon the canvas of young boys' minds some type of heroic, even iconic status. Please don't think that I'm condoning their behavior, because I'm not. However, many of us have heard of men such as Billy the Kid, Jesse James, Butch Cassidy of the Sundance Kid, or even Bonnie and Clyde. These individuals' notoriety stem from the fact that they were thieves. They were outlaws. They were mavericks. They didn't fit in with society. They did things their way. Time was, of course, much different back then. Food was scarce and money was even more scarce. Thus, many did what they had to do to survive in their minds. In short, these men took what was not theirs. They were thieves. History alone only knows how many thieves this world has encountered. Some have never been caught. Others died in jail. But there is one man whose tale is quite different. Because he stole, but he stole for a different reason. He was the world's greatest thief. When a person thinks about Jesus, discusses Jesus, or preaches about Jesus, various viewpoints or dimensions of his life are explored. 
For instance, when we think about Christmas, we think about the birth of Christ, and we celebrate and reflect and appreciate the fact that Christ came to this world. When we consider what Easter means, we know that it is about the resurrection of that Christ that offered his life, and we celebrate his resurrection. We hear of him as a miracle worker. We read the Gospels, and we see that he was the son of a carpenter. Thus, growing up, his trade was that of carpentry. We know that he was a provider, having fed over 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. We know that he turned water into wine. We know that he was a healer, in that he opened blinded eyes, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. Scripture portrays him as the gentle shepherd, the lily of the valley, the bright and the morning star, the root and the offspring of David. So many mother opinions and depictions of Jesus have circulated throughout the years. In many ways, it gives us a well-rounded view of the life of our perfect Savior. To say that one was more important than the other would be a tragic mistake on our part. For everything Jesus did, he did with purpose. His moves were methodical. His miracles had motives. He was not a God of happenstance, but he was a God of purpose. With that in mind, we can say that to point to Calvary and say that it was a vile act of rage on behalf of an angry multitude would be the same as us saying that Jesus was caught off guard, that Jesus wasn't supposed to die, and that Jesus was tricked by the people. This does not make sense that a spotless lamb would be put to death on Golgotha's hill as a spectacle for all to see. We don't think, we don't want to think of Jesus as being a thief. But hear me tonight. There's strong evidence in Scripture that we could categorize Jesus as a thief. Calvary was not for petty thievery. Calvary was reserved for the worst of criminals. Serious problems. Serious crimes. But Mark chapter 15 verse 28 tells us that Jesus was right where he was supposed to be. And he was numbered with the transgressors. It was prophetic fulfillment that Jesus was supposed to be on that hill between two thieves. With thieves on both sides, we no longer see Jesus as an innocent child. We no longer see him as a mighty miracle worker, a storm settler, or a powerful preacher. But we see him for what he really is, front and center. He's a thief. He's not just any thief. He's the world's greatest thief. Although they didn't know it at that time, they were crucifying the greatest thief the human race would ever know. He was different from what they would have thought. He wasn't your normal thief because his objective was quite different. He was a thief in that he would take what was not his. However, it would be for the benefit 
person that he was taking it from. This Jesus would die as a thief that would change the landscape of the human race. And his greatest accomplishment was not miracles. It was not teaching. It was not carpentry. But his greatest work was what would happen at Calvary's hill. You hear me tonight. The first thing that Jesus stole was he stole your infirmities. Because Jesus didn't know what sickness was. He didn't know what disease was. He didn't know what it was like to be sick because sickness was not of him. But he said, I'm going to take the infirmity of these people and I'm going to put it upon my shoulders. And every time they hit him with that whip, he said, I'm going to take cancer from them. I'm going to take diabetes from them. I'm going to take sickness from them. It wasn't his. But he said, I'm going to take it from them. God's original plan for humanity never involved sickness. It never involved disease. It never involved suffering. Pain was not a part of his plan. Grief and sorrow was not a part of his plan. It was all a result of fallen humanity. He watched as people suffered. Many prayers have been offered as a result of sickness or physical difficulty. But Jesus, before he ever started walking up that hill, they brought him to a whipping post. And there they began to beat him with a cat of nine tails. And those Roman soldiers did not know that with every time that that ripped into his meat and pulled it out, that he was actually stealing sickness from humanity. That's why Isaiah said, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. It wasn't his transgressions. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. It wasn't his iniquities. It was ours. He was The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Hear me. Infirmity was not God's. Disease was not God's. Sickness was not God's. But he said, I'm going to take it from them. I'm going to steal cancer from them. I'm going to steal headaches from them. I'm going to steal diabetes from them. I'm going to steal high blood pressure from them. He took what was not his. So first thing he stole before he ever made it up to that hill was he stole your infirmities. Second thing that he stole was he stole your identity. Because our identity as humans when we're born, Scripture says we're born into sin, shapen in iniquity. You couldn't control it. When you came out of the womb, you were a sinner. You didn't do anything wrong. You couldn't even, you couldn't even say a word. You could barely see through the fuzzy eyes. But you were a sinner. Your nature was a sinful nature. Your identity, you were defined by sin. There's this saying that goes around and it's traveling through the secular movements and people trying to excuse why they want to live in certain lifestyles. And so this is what they'll say. 
I was born this way. I was born this way. Well, yes and no. A woman wasn't born a man, and a man wasn't born a woman. You're either born a man or a woman. You're male or you're female. Let me go a little bit further in case someone ever tells you that. A male is not defined by an outward body part alone. What makes a male is a, a male is a certain chromosome. That's why you can change body parts, but you can't change chromosomes. Your anatomy alone does not define you. Your chromosomes define you. So you can alter whatever you want to alter, but you can't alter your chromosomes. God put those in there. So you weren't born that way like that, but they're right in this. They were born into sin. That's why Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, ye must be born again. He understood that if you try to make it to heaven off of your atomic nature, then you're going to be led astray by the flesh and by sin because your carnal man doesn't want to live for God. Your carnal man doesn't want to go the way of righteousness. So he said, you must be born again. And, and he goes on to say that you got to be born of the water and of the spirit. Hear me, what is the sign that I'm born again? Repentance alone is not a sign because I can change my behavior, but I can't change my heart. If you decided you want to stop drinking Coca-Cola, you can stop drinking Coca-Cola. You can, you can will yourself to do that. You can will yourself to stop doing wrong, but that doesn't mean you're right. Jesus said when, when someone is born of the water out of the Spirit, in verse number 8, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell from whence it cometh. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. He said there's going to be a sound that is going to be the sign. What is the sign that I got the Spirit of God in my heart? It's the sound of speaking in another tongue as God gives the utterance. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting and they began to speak in other tongues as God gave them the utterance. If sin was a money problem we could finance it. If sin was a legal problem we would legislate it. If sin was a case of ignorance we could educate it. If sin was a personality disorder we could use therapy on it. If sin was a character flaw, we could counsel it. If sin was a physical problem, the doctor could cure it. If sin was like psychosis, neurosis, or hypnosis, the psychiatrist could fix it. But since nobody on earth would deal with the sin problem, God said, I'll robe myself in flesh, and I'll go give my life. I'll give my blood so my people could be saved. This is why scripture says in Romans 8 and 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. That means it was dependent upon finite people who were flawed. That's me and you. 
God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. We couldn't do enough good to get God to, to forgive us. We didn't have the ability to change based upon our own flesh. But in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He made himself sin. What Jesus was saying was, What you can't do, I'll do. What you can't, you can't forgive your, your sins. You, you can't get redemption. He'll do it. That's why the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The world's greatest thief came down, and your sin wasn't his, but he took it. Your depression wasn't his, but he took it. Your addiction wasn't his, but he took it. Your chain wasn't his, but he took it. Your problem wasn't his, but he took it. You know why he took it? So you could have life and life more abundantly. Clap your hands unto the Lord. Longfellow could take a worthless piece of paper, write a poem on it, and instantly make it worth thousands of dollars. And we call this genius. Rockefeller could sign his name on a piece of paper and make it worth millions of dollars. And we call this riches. Van Gogh can take the courses of material, paint a picture on it, and make it priceless. And we call this art. But Jesus Christ can take a sinful, broken life, wash it in his blood, put his spirit in it, and make it valuable before God, and we call that victory. He gave you a new start because he stole your identity. Before you came to God, you were defined by your past. But when you come to God, you're defined by your future. When you came to God, all you brought was junk. You brought problems. You brought a past you weren't proud of. You brought things that, that you couldn't fix yourself. I can't tell you how many times I prayed with people in an altar. And the first sign that someone is struggling with forgiveness is they won't, put, they won't, they won't pick up their head. Their head is just down, and they're weeping, and they're, they're in a very ashamed state. And you can't pray people through as long as they're weeping over their past. There's got to come a point where they accept the forgiveness of God and they begin to rejoice. I remember one particular guy. We were in a revival. The evangelist preached his title that night was Look Up. I will look to the hills from what's cometh my help. That was his, his scripture. And there's a guy that hit the altar and he was on his knees and he had his head in his hands and he was just weeping and weeping, and asking God for forgiveness, and nobody could get him to, to do anything. You can't pray him through as long as they're asking forgiveness. There comes a point you got to receive the forgiveness of God. And that evangelist went down there and got in his face and said, Look up! And when he threw his head up, 
instantly the Holy Ghost fell on him and he began to speak in tongues as God gave him the Holy Ghost. There comes a point where you got to accept that God forgave me of my past. He forgave me of my sin. He forgave me of all of my faults. He took that old identity. But the day is coming where God's going to show this world something they've never seen before. The world's greatest thief is going to step on the balcony of heaven and he's going to tell Gabriel, it's time to blow that trumpet and he's going to take his bride. We rejoice over healing and we praise him for our salvation. But there comes a day, there's going to come a day when mortality puts on immortality because Revelation 3 and 3, this is what he says, I will come on them as a thief, the world's greatest thief. This world is going to be rocked to sleep, but the church of the living God is going to be watching because we know that that eastern sky is going to split. The Bible says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You just think Calvary changed the world. It did. But you wait. If the Lord tarries and we're still alive, which I got a feeling we will be, you wait until that eastern sky splits and we hear that trumpet begin to sound. And you're going to see a world that's going to be in chaos because the only thing that's stopping the Antichrist from having his way in this world is the church. The remnant of grace that is praying for God's mercy. But when God says enough is enough and he steals that bride out of this world, you're going to see chaos or the world is going to see chaos, the likes of which they've never seen. In fact, Scripture says hail will be the size of 100 pounds begin to fall upon people and they're going to begin to flee to the mountain saying stop, stop, stop from falling upon us. But my friend, the good news is this. You don't have to wait to see the hailstorm. You don't have to stick around to see the destruction of this world because God gave everybody the same opportunity. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Stand with me this evening. As our musicians come, we all today can be thankful Jesus is the only thief that could get away with stealing something that would affect every person that's ever lived. Because when he stole identities, he reached before him because the Bible says he went down and ministered to the spirits that were in prison. And he reached... He reached behind and he reached in front. He said, my death is not just going to be for those that are present. It's not going to be for those that are past. But he said on July 14th, 2019, I'm going to give somebody an opportunity today to have their sins washed, to have their identity buried in the blood of Jesus. You say, preacher, 
know it's real. Well, I'm going to answer that with this story. There was a man in our own, back at my home church. God filled him with the Holy Ghost in such a beautiful way. And he went to work, and people began to talk to him. All that Holy Ghost, it's not real. You know what he said? He said, what am I supposed to do with it? I already got it. When you experience the power of the Holy Ghost, it transforms your mind. It transforms your life. There was another man prayed through in the 80s. I'll never forget. Precious man. He worked at one of the, one of the refineries there. He showed up to church and they said, have you got the Holy Ghost? Prove it. He said, I, I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know what to do. Brand new convert. He said, the only thing I didn't know, knew to do was I threw my hands in the air. And he said, when I threw my hands in the air, the power of God fell upon me right in front of that man. And I began to speak in the most beautiful language that God had filled him with. Old song says, it's real. It's real. I know it's real. We're surrounded by people tonight as heads are bowed and eyes are closed that can vouch that this world didn't give it and the world can't take it away. But the Holy Ghost is a gift from God. No man can teach you to talk in tongues. No man can give you the Holy Ghost. But there was a man that went to Calvary and he said, when I get out of this place, I'm going to send back the comforter whom the Father will send in my name and he will lead you and guide you into all truth. And the Spirit of God that we feel in this place today is that Holy Ghost. The beautiful thing about God is that God gives every person the same opportunity to draw closer to the Lord. He gives every person the same opportunity to know Him in the fullness of His power. With heads bowed and eyes closed today, I'm going to just ask one simple question. If you're here today and you want God to touch you in a special way, whether you've never had the Holy Ghost or you've had it many, many years, but you want God to touch you in that beautiful way with His Spirit. Nobody's looking around. This is between you and God. All I want you to do is raise one hand in the air right now. This should be everybody in the building that wants a touch from God. I couldn't imagine coming to church and not wanting God to touch me. I couldn't imagine coming to church and saying, I'm going to be happy leaving the same way that I came. I think everybody in this building should want a touch from God today. Here's what we're going to do. Everybody that's physically capable, I'm opening these altars. If you want a touch from God, we're not going to come beg. We're not going to come down here and plead with God. But we're going to come down here and we're going to lift our hands toward heaven. Everybody in this building and we're going to begin to talk to the Lord. I invite our church family and our guests. Why don't you make your way down to this altar this evening and oh, lift your hands up toward heaven and begin to talk to the Lord. All over this building, let's move quickly to the altar. As they began to sing, God is here today because he wants to touch people's hearts. God is here today because he wants to renew his spirit in you.